When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Danny Boyle, director of Sunshine and Train Spotting, and you're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Benny, bring me everyone. What do you mean everyone? Don't think we have room on the show for everyone, but the top five is all yours, Mr. Oldman. Gary Oldman there in a memorable scene from 1994's Leon the Professional. This week on the show, we'll share our top five Oldman performances, along with some thoughts on his latest, the Oscar-nominated Darkest Hour. That and everyone ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's time for us to reach the conclusion of our running joke. Josh, did your niece let you take her to Paddington 2? Did you finally see it? This has been three weeks of drama here. Yes. The whole world is enraged that I had not seen Paddington 2. Thankfully, even though she had already seen it. She already saw she humored it, she, you anyway. she humored me and said, yes, I'll go see it again. And that worked out for the best because she also told me, well, then I can warn you when the scary parts are coming. Nice. So, And she did. She sat next Bonus to me for everyone. and shouted out every 20 minutes, close your eyes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure the theater. There's scary parts? Well, I, I, guess. Was, I was a little confused. I tried to clarify that afterwards. And it was specifically when he would throw the smoke bomb to disappear. Mm. That was very Hugh troubling. Grant. Yeah, very troubling to her. And it, of course, it was delightful. I, I loved it. Good. I might put it a notch above the original, okay. as most people are, yeah, I think. including me. Though, but I think you undersold it with that saying the prison escape sequence was better than Grand <laughs> Budapest. I yeah. mean, re- let, let's just call spade a spade. I think it was better than Brisson's A Man Escaped. <laughs> Okay, maybe pushing it a little too far. In Paddington 2, it's Hugh Grant who gets to put on the disguises and do all the funny voices. And as great as Grant was, and he was great, might that have been a better fit for the subject of our top five this week, Gary Oldman? Could certainly see him playing that part. Yeah, you would expect it to be a little more menacing (laughs) than Hugh Grant's take on it, probably. Probably But would have been fun. Our top five Oldman performances will be up later in this show, plus some news about the fourth annual edition of Film Spotting Madness. There's still so much work 
yet to be done. Yeah. But Sam and I are going to, to be we're going to reveal a little. Okay, good. I can't wait for that. First, though, Gary Oldman has undergone yet another transformation in order to play Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour. Adam and I review the movie and ask if this hour is also one of Oldman's finest. We must now select my successor, and it's only one man the opposition will accept. He stands for one thing, and one thing only, himself. Why have I been forced to send for Churchill? This record is a catastrophe. Let me see your true qualities. Your lack of vanity. Yeah, my lying will. Your sense of humor. Ho, ho, ho. Your Majesty. It is my duty to invite you to take up the position of Prime Minister of this United Kingdom. I speak to you for the first time as Prime Minister. When you think of Gary Oldman performances, it's fair to say that they are often, let's go with, heavily adorned. Costume, makeup, hair, accents, movement, expression, sometimes just sheer volume. His choices can be a lot. Oldman is an undeniably theatrical performer, and in Darkest Hour, a chronicle of Winston Churchill's tumultuous first weeks as England's prime minister, trying to stave off a Nazi invasion and rescue the entire British army trapped at Dunkirk, we find him paired with a similarly lily-gilding filmmaker, Joe Wright. Never one to shy away from a little cinematic embellishment, you may recall Wright's Brechtian 2012 adaptation of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina that showcased the transition of sequences with walls and chairs being added and removed, and characters conversing while gently rocking on a clearly artificially constructed train, or the jaw-dropping five-minute tracking shot in 2007's Atonement that follows James McAvoy's British soldier as he surveys the absurd circus of impending doom at, yep, Dunkirk. Despite Darkest Hour being a war movie featuring far more barbs and backroom dealing than bullets and bloodshed, Wright, expectedly, never misses an opportunity to add some visual flair, including a penchant for God's eye shots of Parliament, of British troops being sacrificed at the Siege of Calais, and more. Josh, how did this match of director and actor strike you? Do their instincts serve each other and the material? Or would we have been better served watching Oldman stumble and mumble and deliver his dramatic oration without so much ornation? What's interesting about that question is I could see how things would have gone way more awry putting these two together and letting them, maybe we'll get to this, we could have gotten, you know, Bram Stoker's Churchill, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, if, if you wanted to go completely operatic, which we know Oldman has that ability to do. And as you just described, well, Wright has that ability to do also. But I think they find the right balance here. I think this is a relatively subdued Oldman performance, even though he does have those grandstanding speech scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they work within the context of a public orator. And I think that Wright manages to make a historical biopic in a sense, though it's the kind of biopic I like where it focuses on a specific period of time rather than birth to death. Those can even be dull, stately, inert. And at least what he's done here is make that sort of film come alive. Some people might say it's overdone. I think it kept me in it. So when Mm -hmm. there are things like two bookended tracking shots of Churchill as he rides down a busy London street. We see this at the beginning of the Uh film and things are sunny. People are going about their business. The full weight of the war has not come upon the everyday person yet. 
And then we bookend that later, the same tracking shot, I believe the same street, but it's rainy. You see that people have started to carry that weight. Mm -hmm. And I thought those were nice embellishes more than ostentatious flourishes. You mentioned the soldiers at Calais and maybe the showiest shot comes in a brief visit there where we see a British officer walking, holding a memo, Mm -hmm. and we're pulling back. It's a tracking shot. He opens it, stops to read it, and we swoop up a God's eye shot that keeps going up, 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 up till we're in the air where the Luftwaffe are assaulting the British soldiers. Mm -hmm. And that, too, I thought was a good way to give us the scope of what was at stake, the vast forces that soldiers were facing at that point in time. So I think what Wright brings to this is is just enough panache, at least for me, as Mm -hmm. someone who's suspicious of stately historical dramas. Mm -hmm. It helped me enjoy Churchill than maybe I thought I would. Yeah. I agree completely. Review over. Let's go home. (laughs) If you agree or disagree with our takes. I mean, honestly, (laughs) I agree with everything you said. I think it could have been a much more tedious affair than it was. I liked it more than I thought I would. And I think that Oldman's performance is a significant part of that. There are other really good performances, too. I think Ben Mendelsohn as the king is remarkable yes. here and brings a completely different take on Absol- that king. It took than me a while Colin to realize, Firth. like, yeah. I, th- I thought that's Ben Mendelsohn. But yeah. I have never seen this Ben Mendelsohn. Sure. So, yeah, he's really good. Yeah, it's a it's a more regal and it is a more refined but not lacking in complexity like we would expect from Ben Mendelsohn. And it is the same King George character that we know from the King's speech. And even though I think it may be, I don't remember the timing of it, I feel like it's a, a different version of that king in terms of the timing of us meeting that king. And at the same time, I remember the king's speech being one where he has to deliver some some pre-war or wartime speeches. So I don't remember exactly the timing, but I do know that we only really get hints of that speech impediment and the stutter. And I think that that is really effective the way Mendelssohn uses that to to just undercut him a little bit to make us understand that he's someone who in the presence of someone like Winston Churchill, this larger-than-life figure, it's going to set him back just a little bit. And at the same time, he is the king, and so he's constantly kind of asserting his presence and his gravitas as well. I believe we are to meet regularly. Once a week, I'm afraid. How is... How are you for Mondays? I shall endeavor to be available on Mondays. Four o'clock? I nap at four. Is that permissible? No, but necessary. I work late. Then perhaps lunchtime. Lunch? Mondays. Your Majesty. Prime Minister. The one for me that really stands out and is probably the most ostentatious, and this is a case where we both watched this movie on screener, so I was able to rewind it and watch it again. And I watched it three times because I was trying to wrap my head around what Wright was doing, but he's showing that passage of time and movement, too. He's showing the Nazi troops, I believe, moving across the landscape. It's kind of one of those map shots that we get in these historical yeah. films. But all of a sudden, as it's as it's moving left to right on screen and we go across this this landscape, the map landscape, all of a sudden we're looking at a face. We're looking at a face and we're seeing these eyes filling up with with blood, their blood red. And it's this seamless transition where Wright and his editor here somehow managed to make the landscape of the dirty soldier's face match the 
effect that's on this this map so that they blend together and we go across the ground, if you will, to then being on this soldier's face as if he was part of the map. And it's a bold move in a movie that is filled with bold camera strokes like that. I think most of them are really effective and do amplify what otherwise might seem like pretty staid material. Occasionally there are moments and they are more subtle but there are moments that bothered me more, like when he's delivering one of his great orations and the music swells just a bit too much for my liking because I think the words and the oratory should do the work instead of that music or even the last shot of the film, which mm. it's hard to spoil this movie, but it is a visual moment for me and a sequence for me that takes me back actually to the ending of Jobs, the Michael Fassbender starring biopic of Steve Jobs written by... Aaron Sorkin, Danny Boyle directed it. And that whole movie, kind of like this movie, to an extent, is trying to show us the real man behind the legend. And then at the end of the film, he just can't really help have that grand moment be one where he becomes a god. Yeah. He becomes he becomes this godlike figure of adulation, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so Darkest Hour does break one of my rules when it comes to biopics. It essentially ends applauding its subject. Right. And I will say I mean, that literally does. L- literally. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and that's yeah, the often the ones that I don't appreciate end that way. I guess here I gave it a bit of a pass because I would say that's an anomaly to how the rest of the movie operates and also makes a little sense in context of the time and situation. There are reasons for those people to be applauding other than that the movie wants us to applaud the man and the movie itself at that point. I mean, it is doing that, mm-hmm. but there's also more context to to what's going on. And and I think this is one thing I like about Oldman's performance, too. If anything, he seems more willing to embrace the bullying aspects of Churchill, the cantankerousness. Mm-hmm. And this comes into, we can talk about some of the other supporting performances, Lily James as his secretary, the stenographer who ends up working closely with him. And when he is introduced alongside her, he treats her terribly. And Oldman is more than willing to embrace that and let us see that this guy, you know, may not have been a saint. There have been criticisms about it, you know, not fully recognizing some other aspects of his political career that maybe are less tasteful than mm-hmm. than what is focused on here. But I think in terms of this specific period of time, we see a guy who was clearly a bit of a jerk and also not always completely assured right. of this decision that he ends up making that in the light of history, he's proven to be right. I liked how the film showed it. It was more of a razor's edge decision he had to make. Mm-hmm. And while in public, in making those speeches, he sounded confident and assured. But this goes back to a Mendelssohn scene, one of my favorite scenes in the film. It's a late night conversation between the two of them. I think it's in Churchill's home. It looks like at it, yeah. this point, because... It's the only sequence of the movie I can remember where this beautiful Rembrandt-like lighting scheme of deep shadows mm-hmm. and shafts of light gives way to a bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling, and everything is kind of ugly and coarse as the two of them have this late-night talk, and Churchill admits, essentially says, I don't know what mm-hmm. to do here. Uh, and I think that scene stands out for a couple of reasons, the aesthetics and also the uncertainty that gives another shading to this character. Mm -hmm. And I think despite some of those theatrical flourishes and those cinematic flourishes that we talked about, one of the things that struck me is Wright and Oldman, of course, are 
not too fussy. They're not too busy, even though the camera is picking these moments to to give us these bravura kind of shots. There is silence here. There's an embrace of silence, of quiet. Wright is just willing to sit with no movement at all on Gary Oldman's face mm-hmm. as Churchill as he's weighing some of these decisions. There was one point in particular, I can't remember the exact conversation, but he's talking to someone and he pauses for 15 to 20 seconds. It feels in screen time like two minutes. I almost felt like, did my did my DVD player freeze up? But the fact that Wright will allow for that moment, I think, is a real strength there. You mentioned stakes, and I think that for me is another reason why the movie did ultimately work. It is this other view of Dunkirk, right? You can take it in association not only with Joe Wright's one little five-minute take on the battle, but then we think about Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, and it's a companion piece to that in some ways because that was all about putting you in the heart of the battle. We never see any of the conversation going on back at home. We do hear about Mm -hmm. it, especially as we get to the end of the film, and this tells us everything that went into what we see transpire in Nolan's film, but I think Wright really effectively sets up the stakes here. We are always aware, even though we probably know our history, and because of seeing Dunkirk, we know how this is ultimately going to play out. I really felt the weight of not only are these British soldiers, these 300,000 men, going to somehow escape, somehow survive. But the idea that they were fighting for England itself, that it ultimately could crumble, that it could be invaded and everything about their way of life could go away. That was something I definitely understood throughout the entire film. I also think Wright did deal with in the way he needed to this idea of Churchill sending men to die. That is something that the movie considers. It pauses on those moments. It lets us feel the weight of that. It isn't just, well, he's the leader. He's the genius. He's concocted this plan, and let's hope it plays out a certain way. And if some people have to be sacrificed, well, that's war. We feel the weight of those soldiers dying. And that also comes through in that moment, for example, where we go to Calais and we see those troops. They aren't just this abstraction on the board, the little pieces moving on the map who are proving to be a decoy. No, these are these are real English men. And we actually do get to spend some time with them. I think that's also a moment where the movie tries, and and nobly so, to weave in the Lily James character a little bit more mm-hmm. with the story, because that's where she kind of makes a personal connection, registering the loss of these lives in Calais, and Churchill and this character have a moment. I, I don't know. I'm glad that that role was written, but it feels like a half step. It feels a little yeah. obligatory to give more of a presence to the women characters in this film. Chris has got Thomas too. I, well, and this is part of the problem mm-hmm. as, as Churchill's wife, when you have, uh, we're both way on board with Lily James. Yes. And when you have someone like Kristen Scott Thomas, when you have talents like yes. that and they're not given more to do. She does a lot with a little, but exactly. I it, wish it almost, had it almost makes you wish that there was more. So I don't know if if that's necessarily a strength of the film either. Let me ask you this too about um, Oldman's performance. So, you know, we've said what we appreciated about it, and I think in terms of how he just looks, mm-hmm. the, the prosthetics and makeup work uh, is effective. Yes, but those close-ups that you get. He's good in them, but his eyes are just way too young. Huh. You know, no, you can't change that. And it just made me wonder, you know, as, as much as, as good as the makeup work is, as good as the performance is, why not just cast an older guy? 
You know, it, it's kind of one of we've talked in other films about appreciating when you see older actors and, and not one comes immediately to mind, but where you the lines in their faces and, mm-hmm. and all the character that comes with age. You just wonder, like, why we're getting into the territory of criticizing a movie that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But when I saw those eyes and was like, those are the eyes of a, of a much younger guy. It just made me wonder, like, just just go with the old guy. You know, yeah. there's lots of really talented older actors. The age Churchill would have been who would have knocked this role out of the park. I mean, is that true? You have think to think so. so. You oh, have to think be. there are a bunch of Churchill looking guys in England right now with lots of acting experience who could nail this. And yet Oldman is such a towering performer. Well, playing and you don't such get a the name. I, I get all the logistics. A towering character. Yeah. So it's funny you bring that up, though, because I can't argue with you. And yet that's one of the things I enjoyed about the performance, actually, was there was almost this this meta aspect to it where he disappears as he always does into this character. I don't feel like you really see Oldman much at all, but there are these flashes mm-hmm. where Oldman comes through, which where, is part of the fun. Which is part of the fun. Yeah. Where it's it's in uh, a particularly sly little line reading, the way he just relishes a certain turn of phrase That's or a, a certain good word, word relish, right? Yeah. Or the That's way he, he just he just smiles a certain way. It's a grin, and sometimes it's in the eyes. Sometimes it's in those and maybe eyes that's where what you it see is. Oldman. You can't change the eyes, <laughs> right. and that's where Gary Oldman comes through. So for me, I guess that that ultimately did work. I think it's a success in terms of playing a larger than life character and playing him that way, but still fitting him within the confines of the screen. He doesn't feel like he is in a different film entirely, which you can imagine could have happened here. And one. Fascinating tidbit for me about this performance. I heard it actually in an interview with Oldman. He was talking about how all of the famous Churchill speeches, or at least many of them, the ones that even we would probably know, we have some sense of how Winston Churchill speaks from these recordings. Oldman touches on the fact that that's what they were. They were recordings, and often they were made after the fact. So the Churchill that that history knows comes from these speeches where he's recreating them, Hmm. having delivered them. It might've been months or it could have been years later. So everyone identifies with a certain tone and the way Churchill comes off in these recordings. And yet Oldman made the decision to not just try to mimic those what's in the collective consciousness, but to recognize that when he actually delivered them, when he was, talking to the entire country over the radio or he was standing in parliament and he was entreating everyone to agree with him and to follow him and to fight on. He probably delivered it with more passion and more fire and just generally with more persuasion than he did in some of these recordings. And it may even be kind of an obvious note. And yet for him to not just take the easy way out and go, oh, everyone knows what Churchill sounds like. And I'm going to nail that. But no, he doesn't just mimic it. He recognizes the performance aspect to it. So let me ask you about the subway scene, just because Mm -hmm. I have had a couple people ask me how I felt, and they seem to fall either way, really strongly in favor or not. And for me, I found it to be one of the weaker sort of almost pandering moments. This Mm -hmm. is where he's, I like that it acknowledged he's still struggling with his decision. 
And to help him decide, he goes to ride the tube for the first he time in his life people. to talk to the people who, of course, everyone there <laughs> immediately. For, at first, it's like, you know, the perfect cross section of humanity happens to be in that car. Yes. And then they're all on the right side of history. Of course. Even the six-year-old. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yeah. It, it was just like, you know, man, you were handling this a lot more delicately yeah. up till this point. It's, But it's also the point I see why they did it, because I've heard from people who that was the highlight of the film for mm. them because it's it's all coalescing and it, it comes to this emotional climax. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a little cheap. It is cheap. It feels a little too phony. And apparently it is. Not that I knew that before I watched the movie, but according to what I understand, he did not actually go down in the tube. I actually like the fact that it was set up earlier in the film, even though that makes it even more sort of manipulative or contrived, I guess. I like the fact that we do get that moment early on where he makes a comment about how he's never really had to ride among the common people. And so we understand a little bit later why he might or the psychology behind making that decision. And yet it's too neat. It's too packaged. And it ultimately falls short for me. And yet in the moment, watching that Churchill, watching Oldman get to play a few different notes as Churchill among the people, it made it still satisfying to me. It also was satisfying to me, I think, on one level. I forgave it, Josh, because there is at least some history behind even that scene. I go back to, I immediately thought of Henry V, which is, as I've said here on the show many times, my favorite Shakespeare, my favorite Shakespeare movie, Branagh's version of Henry V, and there is a famous sequence in the play and in the movie where This king, who, of course, is completely separated from his troops at night, disguises himself and goes and wanders among the men and converses with them after listening to them. And that's essentially what this is, though there's different objectives ultimately to them. It felt like it was almost a nod to that for me. Yeah, that's the other thing about it, too, is that I love how they all instantly recognize him. And I understand, you know. Pictures in the newspapers all the time, but it's like the doors open and everyone is like, (gasps) right, (laughs) right away. So the one question, actually, I've got two questions that I don't have the answers to. So I'm just going to throw them at you and see what you come up with. But the two questions that still, I guess, do hold me back from really wanting to embrace this film and really wanting to embrace it as a best picture nominee. I think we both agree it doesn't belong in that conversation at all, considering 20 to 30 other films this year, we both enjoyed more. What do we really learn about Churchill from this? I agree with you. It it strips it back a little bit. It makes him a man. It makes him a man of the moment rather than this sweeping historical figure. And yet I'm not sure that we really come away with a different take on him. You said that he's, he's a little more priggish even than we might've imagined sometimes downright abusive. I don't know that that adds a lot. And the other question is, and I got this from one negative review I read of the film. I was just curious, does anyone hate this movie? Because it seems like the kind of movie that most people would probably have about the same reaction we do, which is we're mildly positive. Yeah. And I went to Metacritic and there were two negative ones. And one of them really well-written take on the movie, Jake Cole in Slant Magazine. Among other questions, he asks, what really is the point of the film? Beyond, and here's that idea of things being a little too packaged neatly, what is the point of the film besides earning awards? And that's a that's a fancier way or a longer way of saying, well, isn't this movie just Oscar bait? Right. And 
I want to deny that a little bit only because I'm not so cynical, certainly not so cynical about Joe Wright to think that he's a filmmaker who gets involved in any project merely to A, make money or B, rack up awards. In fact, I'd probably forgive him more if it was just to make some money than to rack up statuettes. Who really cares about that? I think he has more skin in the game than that as an artist. I think almost any filmmaker does. And yet... I'm not sure that I've come away yet with the answer. I'm not saying it doesn't touch on some some interesting topics, including it just made me think about, Josh, one of the things, too, I go back to studying poetry and English literature in college. You're studying modernism and this reaction to World War One, and then studying history. You're actually learning about it. I took a course on Europe in the age of total war between World War One and World War Two, And one of the things that dominates that conversation is how everyone thought, World War I was the war to end all wars. And that dread, that sense of we can't really plunge ourselves into war again. We really can't go down this path. And you've got the bad guys, the antagonists in this movie trying to hold the nation back, even as we see that it's probably the wrong decision. And we know historically it's the wrong decision. The fact that Wright imbues it with that dread is a very smart move on his part. And yet, even with that thought behind it, I am wondering really what the impetus was. What impetus did you come away with, if any, behind this film? Well, I mean, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with once again considering history mm-hmm. and doing that through a film. And, and that's not to say this is, you know, absolutely correct history. I'm, I'm sure there are liberties being taken and it, it's an interpretation of history as well. So um, so there's that to keep in mind. But also, I think what we've highlighted are some of the purely aesthetic distinctions that make this more than Oscar bait. For me, I, I don't think it's as safe as the quote-unquote negative Oscar bait, when mm-hmm. we use that term. Something like The King's Speech, which I also liked, yeah. but I think there, there are distinctions between the two films in terms of craft, where The King's Speech did pretty much what it needed to do to be considered a best picture contender. I do think that Darkest Hour is doing, in Oldman's performance and in Wright's direction, in the cinematography by Bruno Delbanel, mm-hmm. things that elevated a little bit beyond that. It may have been conceived at the beginning as an Oscar bait picture. I could totally see that. And that doesn't mean that's why Wright signed on or how the development went about. But yeah, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with revisiting history mm-hmm. just to explore it through different aesthetic means mm-hmm. and just to reconsider it on its own terms. As far as what I learned that was new, you know, I'm also seeing this through the lens of Netflix's The Crown, which spent a fair amount of time more in its first season with um, John Lithgow's Churchill. So there were some elements of this story I had seen dramatized there. And I have his performance in mind while I'm watching Oldman. I think, I mean, he's got to be closer in age to the actual Churchill playing that role when I'm talking about why didn't they cast an older guy? I don't know how close, but yeah, so I can't say I learned anything shockingly Mm -hmm. new, but that's largely just because of the crown. Yeah. And I guess to try to answer my own question, one thing I would consider is watching a leader and watching how a leader functions, how a leader uses words to inspire. And this is something that you can't really extract from, let's say, our current political system. And so you are watching it through that you lens. Know, you Trump's, can't help it. Trump's speeches are all, they're not live. They're they are recorded too. <laughs> just so he gets everything just right. Well, I can't wait for that movie. <laughs> if you have seen 
darkest hour and you agree or disagree with our thoughts you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net will gary oldman's other oscar nominated performance make our list of his career highlights the film spotting top five is next stay with us Chadwick Boseman in the trailer for Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. Next week on the show, we do plan to review Black Panther, and we've got a top five that marks a rare occasion. In fact, maybe it's never happened before in the history of the show, Josh. I've got my top five done already. <laughs> and from what I could tell, you did it in 20 minutes. This is no. No. You, you got, I got a message no. on Slack like I don't I really don't like this top five and I, I think I said it. something like process. oh I think it would be fun and then 20 minutes later I got a no. message uh, I'm done so we're doing it no. <laughs> okay it was the night before I think you're you're missing maybe I'm some just span maybe of time I'm just there. thinking about how often I checked Slack <laughs> that might be it but I did initially fight this the top five is yes let's not belabor this what we're calling for now top five directors who should make a superhero movie or basically we're talking about superhero movies we'd like to see and the directors who should make them so we are at minimum picking the filmmaker who we think would be the right fit for that particular project now having done my list i can already say how i have decided to approach it and i want to say it's a combination if i'm remembering correctly of some characters who as far as i know comic book characters we have never seen on screen or haven't seen on screen yet, and others where we have seen them on screen before, but they weren't maybe the stars of the films. They were just part of an ensemble. They weren't the main superheroes. And I'm saying, you know what? I'd like to see them get their own superhero vehicle, and I'd like to see this filmmaker attached to that. So I do have my list done. I still haven't made my notes yet, but I, I really got into this one, actually, after initially fighting it, mainly because I didn't think we had enough nerd street cred, but... I'm I'm all in now and I'm ready. I'm ready. You're you're assuming we have any sort of cred on any subject True. is the problem there. I have not finished my list. I have one that I'm really excited about. And, and it okay. was the reason why I thought it would be fun is it came to mind right away and I was like, I would I would love to see that. Hmm. It falls into your category yeah. of a character we haven't seen. So I think I'm gonna try to lean that way as okay. well. Yeah. Um maybe there's one I again I haven't thought about this that I don't think has been done right yet. Okay. And I've found the director I think might be able to do that. Nice. But I think I'm going to lean more towards, you know, things we haven't seen yet. The best top fives are the ones where I am really excited to share them. I actually want to get the feedback and I'm really eager to hear how people respond. I'm eager to hear how you respond. I've already shared them with Sam and he gave me the 
the vote of confidence. Now you're he not going like, to you're not going to redo this list five times. No, before. I, I mean, think we I've got, got a whole it. week to go. No, yet. I think I've got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to weigh in, we would love to get your picks. We might just share them on next week's show. So last week we did play massacre theater this is where we perform a scene from a movie badly you guess it and get a chance at winning a prize and it was something just in case you missed it here's a little taste there is one who might help who the widow of the web that creature helps no one and none who go there return she has great powers (laughs) to kill so we're not going to reveal the movie or the winner this week, but we did get a little bit of feedback, including this from Zach Al Chokachi. He's in Nashville. As soon as you started, I knew it. I watched this movie probably as much as Star Wars as a kid. One of my guilty, not-so-guilty pleasures. It's so bad that it makes it around full circle to being actually pretty good for the time it came out. I wanted a bladed throwing star, another clue there, as much as a lightsaber. Call me a nerd and take my film spotting card, because I love this film. Sorry, not sorry. Love you guys. <laughs> a lot of people like Zach turning in their film yes, spotting cards. I'm, I'm a little alarmed <laughs> at that, that. They're willing to pick this movie right. over being a member of Film Spotting Nation. Yeah. You were kind of harsh, though. I mean, you just said. There are people, yeah, who said they're part of the band of 11. Josh's band of yeah, 11. We're way over 11 on the well, entries. I'm going to say it. As of right now, we still have five days or so, actually more than that even, to get some participants. But right now, we are up to 29. All right. All right. <laughs> so we've lost 29 listeners forever, but they did let's, know this movie. Let's ease up on the film spotting card removal. Let, let's, let's say if they know the movie and like the movie when they were young, they can keep their card. Mm. If they still claim this is a good movie, okay. the cards. Got, I'm sorry, people. The going. card's got to go. Del Thorpe wrote in, I reckon quite a few of your 40-something UK listeners will get this one. It was on TV all the time in the 80s and 90s and still crops up from time to time. Oh, okay. lucky you in the UK. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The hard deadline is Monday, February 12th. You can be part of Josh's expanded Band of 29. We're going to grow and grow and grow. Right. I do want to take a moment to thank all the listeners, way more than 29, way more than I expected, honestly, who went over to filmspotting.net slash survey and filled out our one question survey. They took the five seconds, Josh, to answer that one question, and it was extremely helpful to us. At our website, that's also where you can find our merch page, filmspotting.net slash shop. Josh's book, Movies Are Prayers, is there also Film Spotting t-shirts and filmspotting.net slash events is where you go to see what movie passes we're giving away to Chicago screenings. Sometimes they're advanced screenings, sometimes they're run of engagement screenings, and they do come and go, but we encourage you to occasionally check out that page. Just click on events at the top of filmspotting.net, and you will also get information if you go there right now about Josh's upcoming visit to Seattle. Some people have written in with recommendations for a bar, for a little place for you to hang out with film spotting listeners. Yeah. Ryan Oliver's suggestion is where we're going to go because, you know, what? it's closest to where I'm staying. So and it looked like a great place. It's actually Elysian Brewing Company. I guess they have a couple of locations 
Capitol Hill is where we're going to be. And this is Friday, February 23, around 7.30 p.m. I'm going to be at Seattle University's Search for Meaning Festival on the following day. So Saturday, February 24, I'm talking about the book, Movies Are Prayers. But we're getting together the night before, 7.30 p.m. Maybe if you're able to make it, uh, let us know on the Film Spotting Forum. Yeah, is that actually, the easiest way to do you that? You know what I did with Portland, and I think I'll do it for you in Seattle as well. If you want to know kind of a general sense of numbers yeah. and who's coming, we can set up a nice little quick and easy Google Doc where people can write in and say, yes, I'm coming. Yes, I'm bringing a guest. Here's my name. We will put a link to that Google Doc on the events page. Easy so enough. If you go to filmspotting.net slash events, you'll see more information about Search for Meaning, and you can click to RSVP to hang out. Have a few drinks with Josh. He's buying. I may or may not let him use the Film Spotting credit card. Are you going to up the limit? I'm probably going to need to. Seattle's a fun town. I'm sure that you will have a great time. A couple of comments in response to our last show. If you haven't heard it yet, we shared our top five films of 1983, part of our year-by-year countdown series, and we talked about one of the films from that year, Videodrome, David Cronenberg's horror cult classic. And we did get one correction so far. Caleb in Concord, New Hampshire, who wrote in, it's Betamax tapes, not VHS. Actually, you know, normally I'd kind of roll my eyes at this sort of correction. But this is a crucial detail for a movie that's all about technology. And I will just say, I noticed that at one point. I'm the one who said VHS 57 times during the episode. And yet there was one scene in particular where I distinctly remember noticing that James Woods was putting beta tapes into his player. And I thought, oh, man, I haven't seen a Betamax player in 100 years. I had one friend who had beta. All of us, of course, were on VHS. And yet when I talk about it, because it was so pervasive, I still think of the default VHS. Thank you, Caleb, for that correction. And we talked about The Right Stuff, my number one film of 1983. I talked about Dennis Quaid as Gordo Cooper, maybe my favorite character and my favorite performance in that movie. Fell in love with Dennis Quaid as an actor because of The Right Stuff. I also mentioned that somehow I've never read the Tom Wolfe source material, despite appreciating Tom Wolfe and also just loving the right stuff and the mythology behind it so much. I can't believe over time I never bothered to actually catch up with it. Well, just today, Josh, we get a note that the right stuff is now available on Audible, and it's narrated by Gordo Cooper himself. Dennis Quaid does the audiobook. There you go. Can he do your next book? Or maybe Movies or Prayers. Then I'd actually read it. I'd actually read it if (laughs) Dennis Quaid did it. Uh, We're in negotiations. (laughs) We will link to more information about that in our show notes if you, like me, love The Right Stuff and Dennis Quaid. We have been talking about this for a few weeks now and want to mention it one more time. We will have way more information about the exact timing of this, the actual dates of the episodes. You can go to filmspotting.net slash marathons if you want to follow along in our upcoming Vincente Minnelli marathon. Six movies, master classic Hollywood filmmaker, and I am really excited about this marathon. I know you are as well, Josh. We hope many people will follow along. Yeah, I've got the first one on order from the library. Should be arriving any day. Don't forget, that's another option for finding these films, your local public library. There you go. The more you know. Also, (laughs) at filmspotting.net, you can go to our Film Spotting Madness page. Now, listen, there are a couple ways to get there. One easy one, filmspotting.net slash madness or filmspotting.net 
click on lists and you will find the madness section there. What is Film Spotting Madness? Well, we've had three years of it, right? It ties in with March Madness, of course. It's our bracket style tournament where we crown a winner. The very first one was actors and actresses. And we had a winner. Yes. Michael Fassbender. That's right. We then had directors. We did. We did a directors. We are thinking of this off the top of our heads and all these shows blend together. It was directors. Coen Brothers? Coen Brothers? <laughs> I think the Coen Brothers won. They did. Is this making you very sad? I should go to you, filmspotting.net slash madness you, while we're recording. The hours you put into this, you should be able remember. to remember. And I definitely can't remember the winner of last year's Film Spotting Madness, which was the Pantheon edition. We took every movie that's in our Pantheon, the movies we love so much, we set aside about 40 of them. We added in all the movies that are sacred cows here on the show. And we got up to 64 and we whittled it down to one winner. Was it The Godfather? I'm trying to look this up as we go here. Okay. Where, where is I will, Film I will Spotting vamp. Madness Film on the Spotting new site? Net slash Madness. It. Okay. Yeah, I see it. The I Godfather. just said it. The Godfather. It was The Godfather. So okay. those are the past three winners. Now. We did announce this at the end of last year's Madness, but if you missed it or haven't been paying attention, we're going to tell you how this is going to go because... Also, it was the Coen brothers. It was. Yeah, see? We have the next three years of Madness planned out. I think this was my idea, my rare good idea. This year, the best of the 90s. We're going to crown the best film of the 1990s. Next year, we'll crown the best film of the 2000s. And then finally, as we get to 2020... Look at this. Look at this. We'll crown the best film of the second part of the aughts. I don't know. The 2010s. It will perfectly line up. Perfect. Everybody will be doing their best of the decade shows, including us, their lists. And we will have Film Spotting Madness to pair with that. I can't wait. I know. I can just see it. I can see it in your eyes. If you knew how much time already, and we're, we're not even close to being done, how much time, going back to last year, Sam and I have already spent hashing out the list of 64 best films of the 90s. Now we're into the seeding process. Now, oh, we're, do, now we're haggling over don't the know. seeds. I do know because when we first did this, we were still operating via email. Yes. So these were Pre-slack. these were email chains Yes. <laughs> to outdo all email uh-huh. chains. So and now, now we can just I'm leave just, you out. I'm just blissfully ignorant. I, you get, are. I get to enjoy it we'll as a participant. I do have uh, one very pressing question, though, Hit before me. we begin. Um, as is also Film Spotting Madness tradition, I lost the prediction bracket. I love that you're bringing this up. Well, I'm a man, I'm a man of my you word. You have to serve your penance. So the first time I lost, uh, I had to watch the penalty we've determined is a terrible Adam Sandler Netflix movie. So I did watch The Ridiculous Six. I also lost the prediction bracket. Maybe it's because I don't put 600 hours into this. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to wonder. Uh-huh. It might be my time commitment. But I lost last year. I forget which Adam Sandler Netflix movie I have to watch because I'm going to do it before we start. I pledge to you, well, I will pay my penance. Is it Sandy Wexler? I think or it's, is it the do I think it's Sandy Wexler, and I should be able to tell you because film spotting listeners haven't forgotten. Someone, someone oh, just this, recently this, this said. Is why I'm really someone just, just recently posted in the film spotting forum. They're going to call me out if I don't. Has Josh finally served his punishment? Has he watched? And I think it was Sandy Wexler. Okay. Sandy Wexler it is, I and, and I I do have the full year till the next tournament to, to do it. Oh, is that it? I well, believe that's coming the, up. I believe that's in the bylaws. So, so yeah, I will watch it by month. the time that's we it. kick things off. Promise. Okay. Fair enough. Filmspotting.net slash madness. Though Sam and I did not have time to exactly decide what we're going to put there, but 
I will tell you this. We are not just going to wait until madness begins. We have an idea, Josh, to get people involved earlier. First, we want to post the 64 movies that are going to make up the 90s bracket. The thinking is that even though we haven't seeded them yet and you can't vote, that people would be able to see what blind spots they have so they can watch some of the movies in advance of the voting. Good idea. Not a bad idea. Informed voters. There we you always go. encourage informed voters. That's right. And also to build it up a little bit, maybe hype it up a little bit, we would share. We have a bunch more play-in matchups this time. There's about eight of them, I think, where it's basically an excuse for us to get in eight more titles. But we take movies that are similar in some way, and we're maybe just on the outside looking in. We pair them against each other. Whichever one wins that initial round, they get to be in that bracket of 64. Give us a taste. What, what's a play-in matchup? Okay. I can give you a good one. I can give you two good ones. Just one is fine. And this is, no, I'm going to give you two. We're not on Slack. Too late. I'm this, giving you two. Is... <laughs> Listeners want what they want. One is Leon the Professional, speaking of Gary Oldman, versus John Woo's Hard Boiled. Very nice. Okay. Not bad, right? Yeah, Assassin, I like it. Hitman I approach. Like it. You got to pick one. One of them's going to be kept around. You can watch it. Future generations can enjoy it. The other film, it's lost Gone. forever. The other one is Election, Alexander Payne's Election versus Amy Heckerling's Clueless. Yeah. See, this is this See, gets hard. This is and and this is where all that work pays off. Uh huh. It's it's in that little twinkle in your eye when I give you those play in matches. I like that match. All the work pays off for me and Sam. We hope. <laughs> that you will have as much fun with this as we've had putting it together. Filmspotting.net slash madness will give you your initial glimpse. Hey, Adam and Josh, it's Jeff Milone, Ferndale, Michigan. Um, looking ahead to the Gary Oldman episode. Gary Oldman, this was tough. If I had to pick one, Jean-Baptiste, Manuel, Zorg, Beth Elman. So... Weirdly flamboyant, um, with this implacable southerny kind of accent in the guise of a billionaire mogul mad with power and, and streaked with a seriously vicious side. Um, but there are also like a lot of a lot of interesting notes to his performance here. Maniacal at uh points or uh the way he's and I can't believe I'm referencing this deep, but coddling this strange like alien puppet that lives in his desk and showing a soft side um, or his monologue to Ian Holm about uh, destruction. Life, which you shall nobly serve, comes from destruction, disorder, and chaos. Now take this empty glass. Here it is, peaceful, serene, boring. But if it is destroyed... all these little things so busy now notice how this one is useful what a lovely ballet ensues so full of form and color now think about all those people that created them technicians engineers hundreds of people who will be able to feed their children tonight so those children can grow up big and strong and have little teeny wing children of their own and so on and so forth thus adding to the great chain of life Anyway, I love his Zorg performance. That's my pick. Great show, guys. Our third wheel these days here on Film Spotting, Jeff Milo, getting us into our top five Gary Oldman performances inspired by his Oscar-nominated take on Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour, which we, of course, discussed a bit earlier in the show. Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg did not make our top five, and I don't know, Josh, if that's because 
you also haven't seen it, but I have gone my whole life up to now without seeing The Fifth Element. I had some homework to do for this top five. It was the third of three titles I felt like I needed to fit in to come at this list properly. And we are doing it as a joint list, even though he's got so many great performances and so many performances that we certainly could have split it up. But I think we've hit on, for us, we feel pretty good about these being the definitive five. The fifth element just outside of that top five. Now, I did watch half of the fifth element. I got through half of it, Josh, last night and are before you sitting down with you. Are ever going to finish it? I am going to finish it okay, because good. I'm liking it so far. I well, think it works. It's like Valerian. You were you exactly. Were high I thought on that was Valerian, okay. I was not so... high on Valerian. I gave it a pass. Okay, I gave That's, it a pass. A pass is too high on Valerian. <laughs> Maybe I like the Fifth Element better okay, than Valerian, good. but I like Willis. I really like Gary Oldman in it. I love Ian Holm in it, and yeah. the the absurdity of the Fifth Element. It it works right. So that, the tone of it works, and that's the thing. I I think Oldman picks the right movies to go bonkers in and the fifth element is the right movie. And then maybe a point of comparison is say Eddie Redmayne and Jupiter Ascending. Oh man. Wrong movie <laughs> to lose your mind as an actor in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, and so there's, there's gotta be, it's not just Gary Oldman being Gary Oldman. It, it's gotta be in the setting, the film, mm-hmm. the tone. Yes. That has room for him. Yes. And the director who knows how to, what to do with that? That's that's he gives great. him a lot. That's, that's a great point. I agree with all of that, and yet I'm so glad that you mentioned Eddie Redmayne in that performance because it does remind me that even though all those other factors matter, the tone of the film and the director and the other performers, that's a good indicator of how badly a performance can go when someone who and he's got a lot of chops. Eddie Redmayne's a good actor overall, but that doesn't mean everybody who has that background, has that training maybe, who goes big like that can pull it off. Right. It, it just shows you how hard it is to do what Gary Oldman does consistently, where he walks that high wire any moment he could fall off and the whole movie goes with him or he just keeps you entranced the entire time as he tiptoes across it. Not many actors have that ability. And there's a risk there, right? There there are performances that where he falls, but I think we're we're highlighting the ones where for both of us or at least one of us, it really does work. I, I think for me, one reason I was, you know, perfectly happy to do a joint list is because I don't have the breadth of knowledge on his films, but also because he he is so hard to pin down. I didn't have an instantaneous idea of what makes a Gary Oldman performance great. So mm. I I even threw that out there on social media and just basically asked what makes Gary Oldman distinctive as an actor and really got some good stuff in response. I want to share a few comments on my Facebook page. Catherine Sass said that he has a strange, in a good way, mix of subtle verisimilitude and completely over-the-top theatricality. So combination Mm -hmm. there. Kate Niggle also said the fact that he is more interested in the character inside himself than in himself inside the character. I think that was helpful. And then on Twitter, our friend Brett Merriman described his strange mix of intensity and malleability. So all of that made sense to me. It helped me get my mind around a Mm -hmm. Gary Oldman performance and watched a bunch of scenes. I think I'd summarize it this way. Oldman is, he's an ostentatious chameleon. So he's always shape-shifting, but usually it's in order to stand out, not blend in. And to go back to your point about 
that being more difficult than it seems, mm-hmm. you know, because we can just point to the bigness and say, well, that's you just go in and you be weird and loud. But I think we saw there's more to it than that. Yeah. And I think when you say stand out, it makes it seem as if he thinks that his performance is more important than the character or the movie he's in. And I don't ever feel that way about Gary Oldman. But he's often the most he takes up the most space. Maybe his character takes up the most space. Sure. In just about every film well, he's and in. Sometimes he's playing exceptions. supporting roles. We have yes, many of them. Yes. And so there are some exceptions, I think, on our list here. And also some, at least I, I brought one, I think, definitive example of this. Okay. Well, I can't wait to get to those picks and get to your take on them. But I do want to acknowledge, Josh, that as we sit here right now, you Google Gary Oldman, which I did earlier today just because I wanted to get to his IMDb page and look up some character names. The first thing that comes up is three articles across the top of the page about some recent allegations against him by one of his ex-wives. If I read correctly, he's been married five times, and this was his third wife? I yeah, may have the details I did read wrong. one of these articles I'll about a week or so I'll link to one so of these ago. articles in the show notes. But something just came out going back a day or two here where his third wife, Danya Fiorentino, goes on the record about the nightmare of being married to him. And I think she she has a quote in the article that sets up this list and the predicament of coming at an artist like Gary Oldman offers. She says, he is a great actor. Was he a great husband? No, she told the Daily Mail. Our marriage was a giant car crash in which demented things happen. I lost my self-esteem. I was broken. I would rather get eaten by a great white shark then go through that marriage again. So I'm mentioning all this because I think we need to acknowledge it. I think there are probably a lot of people in all walks of life, but especially in the arts, who you could say that about, what it was like being with them, whether it's male or female. It goes to a different level when there's allegations of physical abuse, which she does detail. So I'm not going to sit here and say I didn't think about this as we approach these lists and whether or not we should even do the list. And if people don't want to listen to it or don't think it's a topic we should have done, I completely understand that. But she had another line, Josh, that I think is instructive. She says, I had never met someone so fragile, so emotionally vulnerable. He was charming and I thought I could fix him. We fell in love too quickly. We didn't know each other. We'd married strangers. I had never met someone so fragile, so emotionally vulnerable. And, of course, she throws in Charming, which he often is, even when he's playing the most evil characters. So that fragility, that emotional vulnerability, maybe is a thing that made him a terrible husband, a terrible person to be in a relationship with. It is also what makes him so fascinating to watch on screen, perhaps. I think it's good to point that out, too, because also some responses I know you saw and I got a handful, too, were just relating to this, why would you do a list Mm -hmm. relating to Gary Oldman right now? And I think it's a fair question. I think this whole issue of separating the art from the artist is something maybe we thought we had a better handle on a year ago than we do now. And like a lot of people, we're we're thinking our way through how to do that. Absolutely. And Josh, this is not exactly the transition I'm excited to make here, Josh, going from an allegedly abusive husband to a drugged out murdering boyfriend, but we are going through this joint top five chronologically. I also think it happens to be the right order for these performances. And I'm talking about Alex Cox's 1986 movie, Sid and Nancy, the character Gary Oldman plays is Sid Vicious. The film takes place for the most part in the late seventies after Sid Vicious joined the Sex Pistols. They were already this controversial and famous band, and they come over to America, and we see them on tour, and we see Sid meet 
Nancy Spungen, played by Chloe Webb in the film, and it's a relationship that is fraught with addiction and abuse. And Dave Kerr in the Chicago Tribune wrote favorably about the movie in 1986. He said, Cox's Sid and Nancy are children, dangerous, self-destructive children, but still possessed of an infantile innocence. Like children, they're unable to control their appetites or impulses. And he says, Sid, less verbal, just grabs what he wants and chugs, shoots, or slurps it down. Creatures of pure ego, they have the infantile belief that the world was made for them to consume. I think that's not only a perfect description of the Sid and Nancy characters, but of a lot of Gary Oldman performances. I think you could point to that that combination of ego, that belief that everything is just there for their taking. We do see that a lot in these performances. We're going to touch on at least two or three more as we get through our top five. I think it's important that this performance of Sid Vicious is on our list and that it was, for most of us, our introduction to Gary Oldman as an actor. It's another example of him disappearing completely into a character. And maybe what's a little bit different about this one Rewatching scenes from it, and I haven't seen Sid and Nancy since probably my early college days. It's been at least 20 years since I've seen this movie, but watching scenes again, I was struck by how much he never seems to be performing for the camera. He is off in his own world at all times. He is sometimes on the periphery of scenes even. He's never really making it about him, and it's not a case where he's doing that that showy acting to try to elicit a response from the audience or make a connection to the audience. He seems like he is truly lost in this character. And I think of one of the more memorable scenes in that movie, the performance of Frank Sinatra's My Way, his remake of My Way, which I found on YouTube today, the original version of that. You want to talk about mimicry. It's uncanny how much every physical gesture and sound Oldman nails. Hello. And the snow, and so I face the final curtain. <laughs> you can't, I'm not a queer. I state my curse, of which I'm certain. It is a dead-on impression, but even more than that, we see that that element where. Oldman seems to recognize the performance within the performance. The fact that he starts the song as Sid Vicious does, imitating in an awkward, ironic way how Frank Sinatra sounds. And Sam and I were talking about Oldman, and Sam mentioned how it's unfortunate that we never got to see Gary Oldman's take on the Joker. It never matched up. Of course, he ended up being in the Batman movies, but his Joker, his take on that sociopathic agent of chaos would have been perfect. And we see it a lot throughout his filmography. It really began with his version of Sid Vicious. Yeah, I think we might get to a performance that you could categorize, I think, maybe a little bit as Joker-like. For Sid and Nancy, you know, it's key that he broke out, got a big start with a character that's so wired for obvious reasons, Mm -hmm. you know, in the context of the story. But that's also a quality that he retained throughout most of his performances, even the ones that are quieter on the outside, there's that energy kind of humming underneath that is one of the distinctive hallmarks, I think, of Gary Oldman. At number four, I'm going with Bram Stoker's 
Dracula. This is Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 gonzo take on the Dracula legend. And Olman, he gets a chance to showcase that malleability that Brett Merriman was talking about in multiple ways in this one film. We get the 15th century warrior who returns from battle to find his wife has committed suicide. And then when the priests curse her, he curses them, goes on to stab a stone crucifix, that spurts blood, uh-huh. which he drinks, and he's doing all this with these flowing locks. He's screaming with rage, wearing that beetle shell battle armor. I mean, he just goes for yeah, it, right? I so, love that prologue. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Then the movie moves on to the Dracula that we know a little bit better. This is the decrepit devil of Transylvania. And here he's envisioned as kind of a pissed off grandmother, he looks like, or maybe Glenn Close 20 years from now. And as a matter of fact, there's a little resemblance to his Winston Churchill in this portion of Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think, Adam, we might have even done a scene from this section of the movie for Massacre Theater once. The Order of the Dracul. The dragon. Yes, ancient society. Pledging my forefathers. To defend the church against all enemies of Christ. The relationship was not entirely successful. Oh, yes. (laughs) It is no laughing matter. Then we get to the suave young seducer who visits London in search of his reincarnated love. And Adam, I know you watched yeah, Dracula I did. for the first time. For the first time. Okay. In prep for this show. How'd you handle the red eyes in this scene? When his, <laughs> when he's about to bite and oh, his yeah. eyes, I know that's oh, a problem yeah. for you. Yeah, I don't know. It didn't scare me. Didn't, didn't scare, scare me. You? Maybe I've Not finally grown up. Not in the context of the rest Maybe of all I've this. Maybe I've finally grown up, Josh. I think this is a case where Oldman is going as big as the movie will allow him or even wants him to. I think Coppola is not just letting him. I think he's encouraging him to go to the stratosphere in this film. And it's for me, it's part of the movie's bonkers operatic appeal. I think some people you know, would describe Bram Stoker's Dracula as a bad film. On certain days, it can certainly strike you that way. But just watching the scenes from it again, I think I appreciated his commitment to the theatricality, uh, also that there are levels of that subtlety that mm-hmm. Catherine Sass mentioned as well. I mean, what you realize is that underneath all this craziness, it is the same Vlad. Like Oldman makes us realize this is the same guy mm-hmm. in each personification. And so it becomes this broad strokes character study of one deranged figure across centuries. Yeah. I think it, I think it works. I think the performance works. I do. (laughs) Didn't go for the film. He is certainly deranged. And yet, maybe because of my appreciation for that prologue and for Oldman's skills as an actor, you're watching this guy who is horror incarnate in many ways. And he, of course, is ruining the lives of everyone he encounters in search of his goal. And yet you do feel the weight of the tragedy behind all of his actions. You never lose sight of him somehow, Dracula, as a tragic figure. I think Oldman is the biggest reason why. Now, you've mentioned words like gonzo and operatic. I think those absolutely apply. For me, it's a case where you could try to write it off as Coppola essentially trying to induce in his audience the same type of fever dream experience that almost all of the characters in the movie experience 
at one time or several. So many moments where characters are off in this this land where they can't distinguish reality from Mm -hmm. fantasy, dream from nightmare. And as an audience member, you start to feel just as delirious watching it. So he's either doing that quite deliberately and is very successful, or he's completely forgotten how to construct a narrative. <laughs> because there are such <laughs> such leaps in storytelling here and, and narrative logic that it, it really flimsily holds together. But if you are hanging on to the style of it, the grandeur of it, then I could see how it could work. It's all just a dream, Adam. <laughs> it might all be a dream. Okay. We are through two picks here. Our top five Gary Oldman performances. Time for number three. And we thought we would make this a little more fun. We'd get another voice in the mix because when I think of a certain Gary Oldman performance, really when I think of this movie, I think of film spotting producer Sam Van Halgren, former co-host, and his love for this film. And I thought maybe he should do the honors with this pick. Hey guys. So here's where I suggest that Gary Oldman in the early 90s was the Tarantino of movie actors in the way they both made something old and familiar feel like something you'd never seen before. Especially, it's worth noting, if you were a teenage boy in the 90s who was just getting into movies and acting. While Tarantino was reinvigorating crime pictures with his gift for pairing dialogue and violence to thrilling and comic effect, Oldman took method acting intensity and gave it theatrical scale giving his most memorable performances a size and flamboyance that few of his peers could match or would even attempt. Like try and imagine Sean Penn or Daniel Day-Lewis trying to pull off Drexel Spivey, the violent, racially confused pimp in 1994's True Romance, written by Tarantino and directed by Tony Scott. After meeting Drexel early in the film, giddily blowing away a couple of fellow gangsters over a suitcase full of cocaine, We later follow Christian Slater's Clarence to Drexel's lair, where he's come to tell Drexel that Patricia Arquette's Alabama, a former call girl, is now with him. Who the f*** is that? She's with me. Who the f*** are you? I'm her husband. Well, that makes us practically related. (laughs) Oh, I love that line. Maybe you've never seen True Romance or need a reminder of the look Oldman is sporting here. He's got a black leather beret over shoulder-length dreadlocks. His face is ravaged by scars. One of his eyes is discolored by a milky white cataract. His mouth is full of gold teeth. He's got a leopard print jacket over a bare chest and no pants, just a pair of satin boxers and a necklace made of African shells or maybe shark teeth. He's a cartoon pimp. A cartoon pimp who is so committed to the part, not just to pimp, but to black pimp, that Tarantino's script has Drexel refer to Slater's whiteness at least four times. The trick of Oldman's performance here is mostly in the way he uses his eyes. His appearance, his voice, his gestures may be flamboyant, even ridiculous, but his eyes always convey a sense of controlled, sadistic menace. And it's no surprise when the scene explodes into violence. (laughs) Marty, you know what we got here? Mother Charlie Bronson. (laughs) Mr. Majestic, look here, Charlie. None of this bull is necessary. I don't got no hold over Alabama. I'm just trying to lend a girl a helping hand. Oh, I miss you, 90s Gary Oldman. 
for a time, the most exciting actor in movies. Sam getting it done, including just a little taste of that famous Van Perbole. But he might not be wrong. <laughs> Oldman probably was for a time the most exciting actor. How much does James Franco owe to this performance for his alien in yeah, Spring Breakers? Point. Just uh, hearing some of those clips brought that to mind. Man, this is one of his... I'm trying to put this in context with what I was saying before about the movie matching the performance mm-hmm. and, and the filmmaker matching it. This seems one where where Oldman is is just taking it and going yeah. all the way in his own direction. Yeah, totally. Sam used some great words there. Theatrical commitment, the unmatched theatrical commitment, and using his eyes. We talked about it with his performance as Winston Churchill, such a key part of his toolbox as an actor. And I think it was the same interview I heard him talk about his approach to Churchill, he mentioned this performance and that was all his doing. Tony Scott had cast him. I don't know what was in the script or what they had discussed, but all those things Sam mentioned, the eye, the dreadlocks, the gold teeth, that just came to Gary Oldman reading the script. He decided he wanted to do it. He told Tony Scott he was going to do it and he showed up on set that way. And Tony Scott said, okay, (laughs) let's go for it. Action. Action, basically. (laughs) And just let him go. Our number two Gary Oldman performance is Norman Stansfield in Leon the Professional. He is a corrupt DEA agent. He takes out young Natalie Portman's entire family, and she then is befriended by the title character, the hitman. And they go after Stansfield. She tries to avenge the murder of her younger brother. We've now had this string of characters talking about Sid Vicious, I suppose we could throw Dracula in there somewhere, but Sid is this unaware sociopath. He's full of menace, but completely without purpose. Then we go to Drexel, who is comical. As Sam said, he is a cartoon pimp. And yet, despite that silliness, we see the menace in him that eventually comes through. And then you go to Norman Stansfield, who, unlike Drexel, doesn't have that silliness. There's no loudness to his character, to his appearance. In fact, he's as toned down as you can get. He wears, I think, throughout the entire film, that beige suit, Mm -hmm. the white shirt and the beige suit, just normal Gary Oldman hair, no other affectations. He's unshaven. That's really it. And yet he's another Joker-like character in that he's terrifying. The menace is always present. But then the humor comes through. It's the opposite of Drexel in some ways where you can't help but be entertained by him, even as he is such a scary character. And we heard a clip from this in the very opening of the show, that every one line. There are lots of examples in this movie where you really see him feel like another famous method actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, just really leaning in to Mm -hmm. a certain line reading and turning that volume up to 11. In particular, it's that every one line from The Professional. And we've talked about this a lot. These big mannered performances that he gives, these showy performances, they only bug me when I feel like they are affectations added by the actor to try to create the character as opposed to being organic manifestations of a character's personality. And I never doubt Oldman's commitment to the character and those manifestations being organic. But as As big as he is, and he is huge here as Stansfield, he can also be very quietly menacing, as in the scene where he is talking to Natalie Portman very close, very quietly. It's when you start to become really afraid of death that you learn to appreciate life. Do you like life, sweetheart? Yes. 
Because I take no pleasure in taking life if it's from a person who doesn't care about it. Now, maybe I had just watched too many Gary Oldman scenes and movies in preparation for this, and I couldn't quite wrap my head around what was going on. But if you really pay attention to this, it's almost as if, even as creepy as he's being, it's almost as if with this line, he is suggesting a little bit of empathy, a little bit of sweetness being behind this. And yet, if you break down the line, he's basically saying, as I read it, Josh, he only enjoys killing people who don't want to die. Who who are afraid to die, who are essentially good people. The bad people, well, that, that doesn't really mean anything, but he really enjoys killing good people. And there's another Joker shading, right? Yes. That sadistic element. I, this is the one I thought of when you were referencing the the Joker mm-hmm. connection. He's he's working from the inside, so there's not that, but he's still this, this agent of chaos, yeah. right? That yeah. the Joker was too. He really is. And I think you do get moments like that one with Portman. There are other examples in this movie where you feel the discomfort of the other character on screen, but it feels so authentic because you have to imagine that Oldman himself is being so unpredictable and so naturally creepy that you're getting authentic reactions. They don't know what to do with Oldman in some of these scenes, and that just adds to what is ultimately entertainment value, I think, in Leon the Professional. All right. Our number one comes from the film that did earn Oldman his previous Oscar nomination. It's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This is director Tomas Alfredson's take on the John le Carré novel. He essentially turns an espionage drama into an existential horror flick is kind of how I experience this movie. Oldman plays George Smiley, a retired British intelligence deputy who gets called back in to ferret out a suspected mole. And this is an anti-Gary Oldman performance in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It's almost the exception that proves the rule to his most well-known louder roles. I I don't think we're putting it at number one because we're necessarily saying this is better acting or, uh, you know, a more respectable way to act, but it is so good. Mm -hmm. It's just unbelievable how he manages to use stillness here to capture the moroseness of this character who's also trapped in you know a retirement that he doesn't know what to do with and a faltering marriage at the same time he's not drawing attention to himself at all here and he's essentially i love the wardrobe choices in this role as well he's as buttoned up as what he's wearing he's got a dress shirt that's covered by a vest that's covered by a jacket That's covered by an overcoat. And most of the times we see him, Smiley is just burdened by all of this. So he only moves when he absolutely has to. And I think that all comes into play with this character. Uh, It isn't Oldman's only subdued performance. I think, you know, we've seen him do shades of this elsewhere. So he had this tool in his toolbox. But I think it's probably his most effective in this vein. And he's, to go back to that chameleon idea, here here he actually is the chameleon who's trying to camouflage, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to to hide into the background to observe all of the others because that's his role here. We're not so very different, you and I. We've both spent our lives looking for the weaknesses in one another's systems. Don't you think it's time to recognize there is as little worth on your side as there is on mine? He betrays nothing, and yet 
is never boring. And I do think that is very hard to pull off. And as a viewer, I remember that I was just constantly looking for some crack. You are studying him. You are always drawn to that character because of that stillness, because of how restrained he always seems and how in control he mostly comes off. And you want to know what he's thinking. Exactly. You just want inside that head. As I think about this, I do realize that as we are, of course, trying to separate Gary Oldman, the man from the actor, because that's all we can do. Ultimately, what we maybe should have called this list really is top five Gary Oldman characters, because as good as the performances yeah, are, right, it is about these characters that really emerge as so, so memorable. And I had a lot of honorable mentions, actually, that I wanted to throw out because there is this great list of characters to choose from. I really enjoy his Lee Harvey Oswald and JFK, his Shelley Runyon in The Contender, where he's another agent of chaos, but instead of being cloaked in menace, he's cloaked in wholesomeness and civility. His Commissioner Gordon, of course, in the Batman movies, Mason Verger in Hannibal, is the single most disturbing performance he's ever given. And that really could just be because of the makeup. He's honestly just that hard to look at. Rosencrantz in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, Sirius Black in Harry Potter. And I do, if I recall correctly, kind of like the Book of Eli, where he is yet another leader of a band of criminals who wants a lot of power and wants everyone to follow him. He plays Carnegie in that movie. I think Sirius Black is one worth noting as well, because there's an instance where I think he shows restraint. That's a venue where he could have gone bigger, and I think it would have mm -hmm. been the wrong way to go. But it lends itself to theatricality, costuming. Mm -hmm. That could have been a big capital C character. And instead, I, I would put it closer to the George Smiley end of the spectrum, even though it's in a, in a fantasy film. So, so he does seem to know, for the most part. And maybe here's where we get to the book of Eli or something like Air Force One. Uh -huh. But for the most part, he does seem to know when is the right moment to do that thing that he can do so well. Yeah. And I think Sirius Black is another one worth talking about simply because I feel like the casting properly played off our perception of Gary Oldman. Yeah. Right. Like he's playing Sirius Black, who's supposed to be the baddest criminal in this entire universe. And so we perceive him. It's been a while since I've seen these movies, Josh, and haven't read the books, but we perceive him the way the movie wants us to initially, the way the kids perceive him as that evil personified. And yet we're then going to see that broken down as we come to realize who he actually is. I think that's part of the meta element at play with Tinker Taylor, too, actually, yeah. is mm -hmm. that we're we're expecting that side to come out and it and it never does, which again was the right way to go. Uh, vengeance is sweet. I hope I'd be the one to catch you. Severus. I told Dumbledore you were helping an old friend into the castle and now here's the proof. Brilliant Snape. Once again you put your keen and penetrating mind to the task and as usual come to the wrong conclusion. Now, if you'll excuse us, Remus and I have some unfinished business to attend to. Those are our top five Gary Oldman performances, and that's our show. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an MP3 or leave us a short voicemail, and we may use it in next week's show. 
888-900-0744. At filmspotting.net, you can also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. If you've already gone through all of those, well, then you have plenty of time for the other shows in the Film Spotting family of podcasts. That would be The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release, really excited to see 24 Frames, Abbas Kiristami's final film, A Fantastic Woman, Oscar-nominated for Best Foreign Language Film from Chile's Sebastian Lelio. Next week on the show, we will review Black Panther and share our top five director superhero matchups we want to see. Yours is already done. Look at you. Already done. Easy Street I'm this ready. week. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, would you please give us a quick review on Apple Podcasts? That will help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Super Bowl. Did you watch it? You guys watched Super Bowl at the Larson House? The Super Bowl was on. And... uh... (laughs) Watch. It was a good game. So, yeah, watched most of it. The event in our house was uh, JT at halftime. Oh. Yeah. You know. I didn't watch. It was no Lady Gaga, no Katy Perry. You know, couldn't live up to those two, in our opinion. What? Yeah. But you're the ones who were dying to see JT at the United Center. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean his performance at the Super Bowl was great. Okay. It was fine. It was fine. (laughs) It was fine. Some good dancing. I felt very sorry for that kid he picked out at the end, even though he's like a mini celebrity now. But uh, he kind of like concluded up in the crowd. Did you see that at all? No, no and then, not um, a moment. There was some, I don't know, maybe 12-year-old kid, something like that, with his phone that uh, he like kind of not forced him into taking a selfie with. But the kid was clearly uncomfortable and kind of dazed. Mm-hmm. and didn't know. It wasn't quite the... Um, the wonderful moment I think he had planned for the end of his routine. Huh. So I, I just kind of felt bad for the kid. But the Super Bowl at our house is just about the snacks. <laughs> like oh yeah, Connor and Quinn could not care less. I don't think either of them have ever even watched a football game in their lives. But they were so pumped for Super Bowl Sunday because they knew it meant that we would get garlic and parmesan buffalo wild wings okay that we would have some other dips that we would probably end with ice cream that's mm-hmm. all they cared about was the food now holden and sophie actually ended up being really invested not just because of the snacks but because of a friend or someone they know who's this huge eagles fan okay so that meant of course they were just completely rooting against yes. the eagles really invested, oh against yeah really invested in the eagles just to just to rub it yeah. in yeah, oh okay basically. so they wanted the eagles to to go down so they all watched it sarah has decided that she doesn't like tom brady yeah that's where things have gone now and i've just decided not to have that argument with her so <laughs> she was actively rooting for the eagles the only one in the house wow actively rooting for the eagles but rooting so interests it. were at play at halftime in I... our house we just base it on the uniforms okay well <laughs> we took a poll so so who wins that one? Oh. Because the green's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I, and mascots, too. So okay. B thought it was the um, the the Boston soldier men. And I said, <laughs> well, close. It's it's the Patriots. Uh-huh. And yeah, we all like. Soldier liked, men. We all like the, 
the she might have just said soldiers. I don't know. We had we had my niece over too, so she was watching and chiming in as well. Um, the eagle logo won out though, and, okay. the, and the green. Some yeah. debate whether it was greenish blue, bluish green. We spent a lot more time on those sorts of things than any of the logistics. Of the play on the field. That's fair. Okay, so this probably won't get into the Darkest Hour review, so I have to bring it up. Even though this is just probably annoying kind of bragging about your kid while also pointing out that he's he's never going to have any friends or go on a date in his life. Okay. Holden. So I watched Darkest Hour with him because Hol- I know... Holden, I, I have much more hope for you in general, so don't listen to your dad. <laughs> oh, wait, actually, I got a really funny story first, and I swear this is true. I can't believe I didn't bring it. Sarah showed it to me the other day. Quinn, who's 10, as part of a school project, had to do a family tree. Mm-hmm. So he made this this family tree. It's basically just white like construction paper, and it's got pictures of different family members sure and then their their title if they have one and you know title being like grandma grandpa sure you know grandma and she's a nurse or whatever and a little bit about grandma so it's got me and sarah and it's got grandma you made the cut that's good (laughs) and it's really only got about eight people on it josh guess who else made the cut me josh larson oh there's what a, a picture of you. What a good kid. He found a picture of you on the well, internet. That, that's what I'm wondering. Friend, <laughs> co-host with my dad. What do, you, what do you mean found a picture on the internet? I'm assuming he just grabbed the one you have on the fridge with the magnet. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> so Sarah and I just thought that was that, hilarious. That's great. You that made really, the cut. That warms my heart. Yeah. What, what was my title? Of you. I think it was just friend, great, friend of the family, great, friend of the family. Yeah. My dad's co-host. That's great. <laughs> Something like that. Wow. It was funny. So. We're watching Darkest Hour with Holden, the history buff, who who does have maybe something close to a photographic memory. He does just retain information. And there were a bunch of points like this, but the two I remember, there's a there's a scene, I don't remember exactly what the date is because I don't have a photographic memory, but there's a scene where the clock ticks, you know, it's one of the devices yeah. that Joe Wright uses, mm-hmm. the date, and it goes to like May... 29th or something like yeah. that and did they someone, get a date wrong someone says someone says belgium someone says to churchill belgium just fell and he says you know france is gonna go next then or something like that and and holden goes yeah france goes 13 days later <laughs> <laughs> and he knows the date he actually knows the date when france fell and i'm i'm just thinking how how do you know that? You know, how do you retain yeah, that? Yeah, because it, it's not it's because not, this movie came out and he's been reading up on it. No, this is just something he has not, in his back it's, pocket. It's not a date which will live in infamy, right? <laughs> so so how does he know that? So I'm thinking, I'm asking him, Holden, when did you, how do you know that? And of course, mm-hmm. he says, well, I read it. And I said, well, when did you read it? And I'm thinking this is the, the brilliant part of the story is it turns out he read it four years ago and has somehow remembered it. <laughs> no, this is the brilliant slash weird part is he says... He says, well, actually, I read it like two days ago. Okay. And I'm still thinking it's kind of odd that he'd remember that. But he says, I, I read it like two days ago. And I'm like, yeah, but why? And he goes, well, just sometimes when I'm bored, I read about World War II. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. So he just happened to be reading about <laughs> the beginning of World War II and remembered June 10th. And then later there's a point where it's when Churchill's trying to he's, – he's trying to inspire Parliament. He's talking to the House of Commons or whatever. And yeah. he says – he says something about he references like Mosby or Mosley. He just says him by name. And I, we didn't study him in school. I don't think anybody studies him in school. 
and everyone jeers and and I'm like Holden who's that and he's like oh Edward whatever and he gives the whole thing he's like he was this right wing guy in England at the time who blah 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 just just rattled it off he was he was my own personal Wikipedia sitting yeah. right next to me during Darkest Hour commentary so now does it bother him having all that knowledge do any sort of historical like does he also get to be where oh that minor detail was wrong or this didn't or, or is he able to it like recognize that it didn't happen this is here. a movie it's going to happen no I, I think he would be really hard on the movie it w- the, if well, that would be it. my expectation yeah. too but I didn't so. I didn't really hear him complain okay. so maybe it, it got the facts right film spotting is listener supported join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes monthly bonus shows our weekly newsletter and for the first time all in one place the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005 that's at filmspottingfamily.com